0: Doxed, the podcast.
1: Alley stands that think we're obsessed with them. Um, I have no clue at all who these people are. That's funny.
2: Yeah. Root Witch. I think yesterday was the first time I ever heard of that name. So for them to be complaining about how we're all attacking. I mean, it's just that's what's been happening since the very beginning where Allie was like, oh, Jane is stalking me. And it was just like, no, but like, yeah, people are sitting quietly amongst themselves, honestly, thinking I'm some kind of attacker of all of them. No, I have other better things to do. So that is a really weird. And I think there's definitely some people that just want to keep it going. And then there's a lot of people that even if they wanted to keep it going a couple months ago are tired now, too. So, yeah,
1: they yeah. should be tired because this is stupid it's stupid to want to like it's stupid to want to be a part of a drama just for the sake of being a part of a drama and no one even knows you are like that's kind of sad and funny
2: yeah i don't think that person root which played any significant role in any way in any direction at the entire time and it's weirdly entitled to think that you are involved at this point, (sighs) point weird weird energy yeah and then I was, yeah, I was trying to prepare for this episode and I was going down the whole rabbit hole of my, like, of my, because I took a couple different university courses that like informed all this stuff and there's all this article. So I was just like drowning in articles because, <laughs> um, because this is speaking of very sprawling topics, white supremacy, very sprawling kind of infiltrating everything kind of a topic like when you talk about everything any part of this really it kind of circles back to white supremacy or it ties in or white supremacy is amplifying something about it Mm -hmm. and it's just really hard to even think about where to begin with the topic
1: well because so many roads seem to lead to white supremacy every pipeline anyone talks about it's a pipeline to white supremacy for sure to the alt-right
2: and again I think intersectionality is a very very important key to this entire discussion and understanding why that is true why that's the case and also I think just understanding that like our entire society is a settler colonial society so the whole point of our entire civilization is to destroy or assimilate native people and make them disappear off the land so that we can have it and take it over. And that is such a fundamental thing about why we're even here, why we even exist, uh, what our entire industrial complex is about, that it really does just always tie back to the need to, like, reproduce, the need to reproduce that settler colonial power. Everything in our whole society goes into it. I don't know where to begin. Like, there's so many ways, there's so many of Ali's behaviors and there's so many behaviors of the followers and then just general circumstances that make a lot more sense when you understand what white supremacy is and how it's operating. Like the cosplaying as a cop and Joe Dispenza and just, you know, white men abusing their power in general, the fake tears, the crying tears to act like a victim performatively, fake shaman stuff, which goes into, I want to talk about a particular article about decolonization that talks about settler moves to innocence. And I think that's one of them. And it's really important, not only because of Ali's history, but also because of the entire corner of TikTok that we were on or are on with all this kind of spiritual, what even is whitewash spirituality? What are the motivations for people to do that? That list
1: of things that you just listed down that Ali does, the cosplaying, the acting like a cop, acting like a Southern preacher, like taking... Like, cosplaying is male authoritative roles. Yeah. Also, specifically pointing to Black women that are her targets and specifically calling Black women scammers. If there's anything that has to do with a Black woman that's at all involved in this situation that is not on Allie's side and makes an income in any way, she specifically calls us scammers
2: yeah that's a good point and it's really sickening because of course there's a already an imbalance that needs to be corrected for and even like reparations are part of that but just i mean it's disgusting to try to really yeah, and she reserves that label try-
0: only for black
2: women yeah did she call dj a scammer too Mm-hmm. yep
1: yeah. well Scamming people out of money for paying for
2: manifestation coaching. I remember that. That's very telling. I mean, especially considering the people in her own camp. And also, I mean, any black women or black people on her own side get tokenized, which is a whole other element, using a person as a token example of or, or using, hey, I have a black friend to just excuse your behavior or to legitimize it in some way at your expense. It's wild that the definition, again, the definition of scammer is uh, somebody that's not aligned with Allie. Yep, scammer and narcissist. If you're not on Allie's side, you are definitely those two things. <laughs> yeah, I want to articulate more about that. Like, like there's so many things in our society that just uh, are constant obstacles and deterrence to survival of people of color and indigenous people and to be consciously another one of those obstacles i don't know i don't have a word for it but i mean that's exactly what white supremacy is i don't even i don't even know that's not even what i want to say it's like do you think that it was do you think that it was even conscious i think that it had to have been conscious to some degree but i mean some of that really could have just been weird implicit biases and and lack of unpacking internalized or not internalized lack of unpacking lack of unpacking racism
1: um I, I think you're right that it's definitely a lack of unpacking um implicit bias a, a lack of unpacking internalized racism and all of that conscious or not she made choices that caused direct harm to BIPOC people top a huge platform. and I feel like like people that operate in that way, specifically white women that operate in that way, with that like Karen weaponized tears kind of way, they I feel like she knew what she was doing. But if she had, I think if you have enough people in your echo chamber cheering you on and they all kind of look like you, you you kind of rationalize it like the the hatred the the fuel to seek revenge for not getting her way all of that completely overshadowed any themes of racism that she could have possibly gave a shit about it was about winning it was about teaching everyone a lesson it was about being right and it was about clout and continuing to continuing to grow her platform and I don't think there's any way that she did not know that what she was doing was causing direct harm to me as a black person, as a black content creator, because enough people called her out on it in the beginning where she changed her tune for half a second. And she definitely like switched up Um after being called out on the racism and the what was it like using my real name really early on and people calling her out for the direct harm that 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 could bring to me as a small black creator on the platform. She knew that was a bad look. And I think prior to that moment, Me being her only Black friend, probably her only Black friend ever, maybe. I don't know. She knew it was a bad look. And then slowly, people of color started to trickle in to her side once they decided my story wasn't good enough. My, um, my. Switched over to her. Then she went right back to it. Like, oh, there's Black people cheering me on. So everything that I'm doing must be fine. And. Roxy's a piece of shit for calling me racist or implying that I'm racist or talking about racism. She's weaponizing, weaponizing every, every card, every black card, disabled card, whatever. And my intersectionality did not matter as soon as she saw a black person in her cheer section.
2: Yeah. I mean, she absolutely was tokenizing. She was definitely tokenizing you. And then she was definitely also tokenizing a lot of those, Um, I mean, any of her black followers, because any time that somebody was black and agreed with her, she would mention it and bring it up and use it as a cudgel. Um, She also used black Mm -hmm. followers as a cudgel against me in calling me a white supremacist multiple times. But I mean, it really is ridiculous. It's an abuse of of those followers, whether they realize it or not, I think.
1: And what's what's crazy to me is that she cannot speak to racism, white deconstructing, decolonizing. She can't speak to it at all because she has never done the work. Ever. And people want to get, you know, their panties in a bunch when you say, Hey, this thing that you're doing is steeped. It it reeks of white supremacy. They want to get more mad about being called out. Or being called in, than actually doing the racist thing. And Allie is like a prime example. She's a a, a glowing example of exactly that kind of behavior.
2: Yeah, there's a book called White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. I'm gonna put a couple of different sources and uh, good like extended reading, hopefully, into the description, but that's one that became really popular in like 2018 uh and even into like 2020 and there's there's a critique of it which I'll include in the description too but it talks about how and it talks about how whiteness wants always to just deflect from actually dealing with the the situation like it's like a it's like constant moves to bypass And I don't know, like, I don't know that it's, uh, I don't know that it's necessary to like sit in guilt and shame in a way that is not constructive, but you have to, you can't just bypass, you can't just bypass that work. And a big part of the, a big part of like the moves to white supremacy, I think is just a defensive reaction that's pretty automatic and taught to us by all of society, because again, society is like a machine, and we're like cogs in this machine. So we're all kind of, we're all kind of being programmed from birth or from language, from learning language, to turn like the cog we're supposed to be and make the machine keep going. And part of turning like that cog is that anytime something is going to disrupt the cog like naming whiteness that results in defensive reactions as a move to keep the machine going instead of to break it. Uh, So I think one of the main things that can be, that can be really unconscious, but is just like this gut defensive reaction is centering yourself thinking that it matters what your opinion is or thinking that it matters that you win that you have the final say that you can control other people like that that compulsion that you can save other people that you can paternalistically know what is best for other people and then lay down the law mm-hmm. and you know punish them into no longer doing the bad thing because you know what the bad thing is all of that is white supremacy and all of that is such a it's so it's so programmed into us because of everything that society is because the whole goal of society is to perpetuate it itself and by itself it is white supremacy so it's all about perpetuating perpetuation Mm -hmm. and uh, um whiteness is a really interesting concept to name and it's interesting to it's interesting to pay attention to what people feel defensive about because when you get those like highly defensive reactions that's that might that's pointing to something it could I think in general when people Mm -hmm. react really defensively it's usually either pointing to something unjust happened or it's pointing to uh something would that was breaking the The expectation like the societal expectation happened so whiteness is this like concept that that is portrayed or framed as like everything and nothing at the same time and we're not supposed to name it society doesn't want us to name it so by naming it that creates a lot of a lot of defensiveness in people i think when they're not used to it, when they haven't been exposed to representations of of, of that, because it's just uh, expected as like, it's treated as the normal thing. And I think that that's really insidious because you might think of like power as something that is superior. And so when you're looking around for something that is the powerful thing that you have to fight against you're looking for something that that states that it's above and a lot of the insidiousness of whiteness is that it acts like it's not above but just normal and
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. yeah and so then there's like normal and difference ethnic difference and it even seems in some ways like we almost fail to question so often the common sense framing of whiteness as like outside of ethnicity even like whiteness being inherently better than blackness like white magic is better than black magic uh mm-hmm. we just assume those things are inherent properties of whiteness that it's better that it's normal that it's the standard default. And that is uh, a source of representational power. And I'll cite, cite Richard Dyer in the description too, who talks about whiteness and basically just names it. He says white domination is reproduced by the way that white people colonize the definition of normal so i think that idea of like colonization of the idea of normal and mm-hmm. that seeps into every other category every other intersection so when you're talking about class gender nationality the co- the invisibility of whiteness sits in there as like a colonizing aspect to the definition we just assume that the white version of all of those things is the normal thing when it's when you can't see something it makes it hard to control it or it makes it hard to have power over it or take power back from it there's a lot of like whiteness like the male gaze is the idea of seeing women in film the way that a man sees a woman and it's like to see a woman the way a man sees a woman is to kind of have a have a control or a power over the woman. We talked about fetishization in the last episode. That's a kind of that's a kind of like move to control and I think whiteness is always acting like the subject that is gazing outward at the other at the object and that itself is an aim to control. Bell hooks is an author who talks about the oppositional gaze which is like the gaze of like it's like a defiant kind of a gaze when it's coming from say a black woman back out at the world it's like um defying authority that that pressures it to look down pressures you to look away and not meet that gaze and not like stand in your power and not yourself be able to define and confine and categorize a white person uh that kind of breaks the system for you to for you to gaze and for you to define and categorize there's like an implicit understanding that Mm -hmm. whiteness and white people are the arbiters of what of what is categorized like what the categories are and that they are the ones who get to look upon everybody else as an object so I think naming I'm I'm being very long-winded because this is just like <laughs> it's so much to explain and I don't really know where people are. I think in 2023 most of us have like heard of white supremacy but you would think you would think but I also think a lot of people don't read scholarship and part of part of understanding white supremacy I think is definitely like lived experience. Uh but it's there's also just a lot of like wishy-washy kind of almost even misuses of some of these terms that I think can all end up being kind of dangerous. So I like to go back to the scholarship a little bit and particularly scholarship by Black feminist scholars, uh, you know, such as Kimberly Crenshaw, Bell Hook, Lord. but um, I think going back to the scholarship is like really important to not allow this all to kind of be misused and redirected and appropriated into something that's the exact opposite of the intent because that is exactly what the impetus of society is to do all the time so as soon as you're not like kind of vigilant about it it's very easy to have all these term terms misappropriated and misused and i think we saw that with ali too just like using the term white supremacy as a cudgel and ultimately you're acting as a white supremacist and and how do you tell the difference between what Ali's doing? And what we're talking about. Doesn't it all kind of sound the same? Well, it does, unless you actually know what these scholars have said about it. Um, or just what, or else unless you really have experienced it, I think too. I think Um,
1: a good first step, dipping your toes into the water of decolonizing and deconstructing and like facing your own internalized white supremacy and facing your own implicit bias and all of that is the book White Fragility by by um, Robin DiAngelo. I've read that book. And it's a, it's a palatable first step towards getting your shit together when it comes to white supremacy. And she talks in depth, like you were mentioning, like how whiteness is just positioned as the norm. Like even starting, like going through elementary school especially if you're in a very white area. Actually, it doesn't really matter where you are. School is just structured around whiteness. No matter the neighborhood that it's in, no matter the school district that it's in, no matter the socioeconomic positioning of that school, whiteness is the curriculum, point blank, period. But you are taught that whiteness is the norm and everyone else is the other. So to grow up in a society where, especially if you're white, where whiteness is what's normal It's the standard. It's just what everything is. It's just whiteness and everyone else is just everyone else. And you're the observer. You're the observer of all the others and the others problems, the others uh, trials and tribulations, the others culture, the others issues. Like looking through the window of a zoo. Like that's kind of how white people are taught to see people. I am normal and you are other. So to be faced with the reality that we are all something, we are all part of a puzzle, we 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 are all something, it's not normal and other. It, I think in that moment, being faced with that as a white person that has never deconstructed any of this stuff you can feel how gross it feels to be othered no one wants to be othered especially the the standard that everyone else is compared to they feel what that feels like briefly being faced with oh i'm i'm just i'm a part of a puzzle i'm i am part of a whole i am not the hole and everyone else is on the outskirts and I'm just like looking down on
2: them Does that make sense yeah it does make sense and I definitely think white fragility is interesting it kind of went in and out of fashion in academic circles kind of quick and I think it's definitely like a really good place to start um, and then it's also important not to like sit in that forever and to actually move from that into building up enough of a skin, I think, like working on your fragility to the point where you're not so fragile and you can actually perhaps help in some way.
1: <laughs> Although yeah, a- I mean it's it's important it's an important step to recognize what right white fragility is. And then take the next step to identify it in yourself. That's really important to do. And if that step isn't taken, it's going to be hard to hear anything else beyond that. If you're not healing your own fragility, if you're not doing that internal work first, it's going to be hard to hear anything else because that book alone, I can imagine can be really triggering for white people that are just getting started in this deep self work.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and uh it takes a lot of it takes ego deconstruction. It's a constant effort. Another book that's worth mentioning for sure right at the top is uh well, there's a lot of writing by uh it's Ibram X Kendi and he builds a lot on Kimberly Crenshaw and then talks about anti-racism so how to be anti-racist and also writes has written articles um, and other books so that is a really good author to get into if you're kind of new to like how do i start even start to deconstruct this stuff um but i think a really important thing to keep in mind which is an idea that What do I even want to say? a really important thing to keep in mind is what are what is even the goals of all of this and um like I want to figure is out how that... to get, how to get people to a next stage of being helpful with it you know I think one thing that's important to understand too is like about white saviorism uh that's a really dangerous thing that white supremacy imbues a lot of white people with is this feeling like, we're destined to be the savior of other people and that can play out in the way that we do foreign relations really dangerously and it can also play out in just the idea of again like white woman shamanism or just thinking that thinking that what you know that this is how cult leaders are born thinking that white thinking that They're saving lives just by existing. They're protecting just by existing, not by doing, not by actually doing deconstructive work to to act as a protector. They just are one. They just are entitled to being the savior of other people, which assumes that you know better than other people, once again. so.
1: And not only that, it's important to also deconstruct and identify what saving actually means. What does it mean to save someone? When you're on, when you're the standard, when you're the norm, when you're what's right in your mind and in a very white society's thought process, what does saving actually mean? And what is the motivation? behind that to look at someone that doesn't look like you, doesn't pray like you, doesn't worship like you, doesn't doesn't experience joy like you, doesn't prioritize the same things you do, whose culture is different from yours, and you look at them and say I need to save them, I need to rescue them. What are you doing? You're saying I need to make them more like me to make me more comfortable with them in my sphere. That's all that means. There is no saving any that that's what's so gross about white saviorism because it's not actually about saving anyone it's about making white people feel more comfortable in the presence of the other
2: i would say yes or even further to destroy the other to assimilate them or destroy them to strip the other yeah yeah um And too appropriate to wear the skin of the other too when it suits us. Mm -hmm. And that's what a settler colonial society is. It's constantly making moves at every turn. Everything about what our society is always is meant to destroy or assimilate and, and use, tokenize and use, use up and then kill that's what mm-hmm. that's what imperialism is that's what colonization is and that's really what our entire society therefore is and the more it's like a rabbit hole it's like the more that you start to deconstruct and it very much is ego deconstruction uh the more that you do it the more that you realize there is to do that's and i think that i think that is always true because that's the, the entire nature of the society like in the very core of what quote unquote Western society is. Mm -hmm. It's not some, you know, KKK group in the corner, having these explicit beliefs and everybody else. No, it's everything about what our language is, what our laws are, what our society is. Unless you're actively moving in the opposite direction against it, unless you're taking an action that in some way reverses that, that in some way breaks the machine. Those are the only moments when you're being anti-racist instead of perpetuating a culture of racism.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: You being me, you being white people, especially. Mm -hmm. And then also there's an interesting and important distinction about black politics and indigenous politics. And I think it's another important term to really be careful about in these discussions, is the term of decolonization. And that can be a really hard conversation for people, I think, when they're not ready for it. Like you have to do some of this ego construction or deconstruction. And then it's really difficult to sit with. But the reality is, decolonization doesn't just mean that we you know do sjw stuff and fight oppression in general it's very specific it's a reversal of colonization it's a it's land back it's a reversal of uh our our being on land that is stolen through violent means so there's an article that completely changed my life that i'm also including in the description it's called decolonization is not a metaphor i think if anybody is like listening and wants to read anything from that i would say that's my pick it's by it's by eve tuck and k wing you can never say it it's by eve tuck and k wayne yang and it talks about settler moves to innocence which are basically strategies that are constantly trying to allow settlers to relieve their feelings of guilt and responsibility without actually giving up land or power or privilege. Mm. And without having to change anything about our settler colonial society. So it turns out that pretty much everything that, you know, that we do, is like these moves to innocence in terms of like acting, like we're decolonizing but not actually understanding that the end goal is land back. Like we, we stop short because we say, Oh, we're going to educate about decolonizing. We're going to educate about, excuse me. We're going to decolonize our minds, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's literally just, an attempt to make ourselves feel less guilty if we don't then take the next step. And I think the same thing about the White Fragility book. It's like, the thing that kind of bothers me about it is that I feel like people get stuck there. I feel like people get stuck. Like, first of all, people get stuck on the stage of like, I can't even deal with this. I can't even sit here and take the idea that I shouldn't be the center of the world. Then people start to be like, okay, I've, I've learned to do that enough. Then they get stuck on on the end-all be-all being to sit there and feel guilty and feel flagellated and be a martyr. That becomes the final step. Even that is an attempt to assuage your guilt. Instead of do the actual thing of get to the end and deconstruct enough that we're actually as a society collectively deconstructed enough and then the end goal is land back. And I think that that's like, that's very difficult because then you get into the practice of like, what does that actually mean? And it takes deconstruction to even Mm -hmm. begin to be able to be helpful in the actual endeavor of decolonization takes deconstruction. And it takes not just some, it's never going to be an individual who can just solve the whole problem. It's a collective problem. And it takes a collective solution that individuals can try to all move us toward, hopefully, until there's, like, a tipping point or whatever that looks like. But, yeah, I just think it's very important not to stop short. And I want to talk about, uh, or I guess not to let yourself off the hook, you know? Uh, And not in a way that's just, like, again, like, if I'm going to sit here and be like, oh, I'm not off the hook, but I feel so guilty, then I get stopped up in that guilt, and I'm not actually doing anything, and that's still, that's still an attempt to. I mean, that's
1: white fragility, still. Yes,
2: yeah, just exactly. It's just more being fragile. Exactly. So it's like you gotta get, you gotta move past all of that and get to the real end, which isn't even just decolonizing your mind, like you know, whatever. It's land back. It's reparations, uh, and also, I mean, again, like like uh black anti-oppression politics is not exactly the same thing as decolonization uh that article also talks about like a settler slave uh uh, indigenous what's the what's the third word settler what is it sorry anyway it's like uh people that were brought over to this country uh are in kind of a different camp from indigenous people while also having their own kind of issues but i think that that's very important to understand and not just sort of muddy the word decolonization and muddy all of these ideas together um and i want to there's a couple of like lists list of moves to innocence that this article lists that i think is good to maybe bring up and discuss because i won't do them all but i'll just list the first four so the first one is settler nativism which is like where white people are like, oh, I have some kind of long lost Native American ancestor uh, or or I was even able to find one in my bloodline or something. And so it makes you feel like you're less complicit or less guilty or something. And that's a very, very common strategy, weirdly common. I will even admit in my own family, I was told and did deconstruct that it wasn't true that there was a mythical Indian princess ancestor. Like that's a very, very common weird myth in white families. Uh, And even if it's not a myth, even if you, I think it can be really a beautiful thing to find your ancestry roots and start to get back in touch with them. But it can still be used as a weapon or a move to innocence, even for people where it's actually true that they have that kind of ancestry if they are disconnected from their people you still probably need to do some deconstruction even mm-hmm. though that is a beautiful thing and anyway so that's the first one and then there's settler adoption fantasies which is not related to Iqua, which woo-hoo, by the way <laughs> <laughs> um the indian child welfare act which is gonna uh I think protect a lot of indigenous children from being assimilated, which is the whole goal of white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. But that, but this is not settler adoption fantasies. Is not the same thing as that <laughs> as like adopting native children. It's the adoption of indigenous practices and knowledges and knowledge, but also like fantasies, ha- like white people having fantasies that native people understand understanding. Sorry, I'm not saying this right. Fantasies that. Native people understand that they are going extinct and they just nobly hand over the land and even like a native identity to the white people. It's like a weird idea. And that comes that manifests in things like adopting indigenous practices and knowledge and appropriating them, like for example, a fake white woman shaman, right? right. Uh that comes you from when we found that like shaman school website yeah it's so it like a weird it's like a weird concentration of fake white woman shamans in denver Allie talked about that a little bit and she's in not boulder. wrong because we looked into it and it's like a weird amount of white lady shamans in denver weird mm-hmm. more specifically boulder colorado oh yeah okay i'm not i've never been to colorado and i don't really understand the city the places in it so i'm sorry about that <laughs> um specifically colorado that's what i know yeah um but yeah, like a weird and very corporatized, very capitalist, uh, yeah. So then uh, another move to innocence is colonial equiv- uh, colonial equivocation. So it's like this is the one that is like the homogenizing various experiences of oppression as colonization. So. The article says calling different groups colonized without describing their relationship to settler colonialism is an equivocation, the which we talked about in the fallacy episode it's all tying in, tie in. Mm-hmm. the fallacy of using a word in different senses at different stages of reasoning, in particular describing all struggles against imperialism as decolonizing creates a convenient ambiguity between decolonization and social justice work, especially among people of color, queer people, and other minoritized groups. So Uh, And then it says, and I think this is an interesting passage, we are all colonized, maybe a true statement, but it is deceptively embracive and vague in its inference, that none of us are settlers. So we are all colonized, but it doesn't mean that we're innocent of the colonization. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that's a really important point. And then. Yeah, and then another move to innocence is just free your mind and the rest will follow that and and just remembering that decolonizing our minds is is a first step and a very important one. And it's a it's a lifelong endeavor, and it's also not the only step to decolonization. It does not end there.
1: So it's I love that passive thing. It's not a passive thing at all. It's yeah. work to decolonize. And it's not enough to be or to say well, I'm not racist and I don't have friends that are racist and I I don't think racism is good and I wouldn't participate in that. That's not enough. You have to be actively anti-racist. And that's something that I didn't even realize until, what, 2016 when Trump was, was elected and all these racist people suddenly, like, were just so loud and proud about their white supremacy and about their racism and about not being politically correct about anything and being so unapologetically ignorant. And I had like experienced some racism growing up. I grew up in like an extremely white area. My parents were immigrants. Like I would be the only black kid in many of my classes for many years of my schooling i think in my graduating class i think there was five black people in my graduating class out of like 1200 students so yeah i've definitely experienced racism my whole life but it's the it's the socially acceptable covert like deniable racism that really hurts and that is Really a problem because there's not a lot of overt racism going around because it's not a good look it's not a good look at all but when it's socially acceptable and there's some deniability on your side and you can kind of laugh it off as a joke or a misunderstanding or a person of color just being too sensitive that's the shit that's that's a problem and just as harmful and just as dangerous for for BIPOC people so it's not enough To say, well, I'm not racist. I'm I'm not part of the KKK. I don't know anybody that does that. You, that's not the thing. That is the big glaring, flaming, smoking problem.
2: You have to be actively anti-racist, and that's why I really love Kendi's writing because he talks about how he talks about that in a in a way that is. He talks about that in a way that's, I think, really accessible and makes it very, I don't, it makes sense why you have to be anti-racist rather than thinking about it like you're actively racist at some point. And I think that's just such an an important thing to understand that it's just like, it's like you're stepping in like a river and you have to swim upstream or else you're going to get carried down the stream. Mm -hmm. And I also think, the concept of dog whistling is important to bring up too here because you were saying about how they won't be explicit when they know that they'll get opposition. Mm -hmm. And so a dog whistle is this idea of like coded or suggestive language. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page of the definition in uh, to garner support of a particular group, but also not provoke opposition. And I notice that a lot with right-wing rhetoric Mm -hmm. and fascist rhetoric and authoritarian rhetoric. All of that is like trying to say, it's never just being open and honest about what it thinks. It's always mm-hmm. acting like it thinks the exact opposite of what it actually thinks. Which is like a weird gaslight, but it's like the entire tactic of of how all that rhetoric gets spread. It's just like, it's like, uh, like you have to imagine that it's uh, that the people that are spreading that kind of rhetoric are conscious of it. But I think there must be tears of people and some people just just get gaslit into thinking that up is down
1: Mm -hmm.
2: but part of the yeah part of the way of doing that is through dog whistling and that's where you're using and I've even been somebody who has done this I'm guilty of having done this in my life and it's easy to do of accidentally dog whistling or not even realizing that what you're saying is a dog whistle which I think in a way you're not then dog whistling, but if you don't understand that you're like partaking in something because you think it means something that you don't understand that it has certain layers of meaning, you're Mm -hmm. still contributing to something that can be harmful. So, and it's easy to feel defensive if somebody's like, oh, what you're saying is a dog whistle or what you're saying is actually like, and you don't think that it is, but you have to understand the cultural context of the language. And you very, and I have done this, so I know that it's not difficult to start using terminology or thinking of things in a certain way. And it turns out you got gaslit, (laughs) turns out you got like brainwashed by dog whistling and by just like, it's literally like presenting as the opposite of what it, what it means, Right. Like, somebody acting, as, acting like a white supremacist while also weaponizing the SJW concept of white supremacy at other people, you know, at the same time. That's like a weird gaslight. And it's like a very, very common tactic of fascist behavior.
1: I mean, that's why it's so important to educate yourself and pay attention to history, not just, not just the forefathers and what Thanksgiving was and the whitewashed Disney version of American history. It's, it's important to learn the entire history from the multiple groups of people that exist in this society. There's so much they want to call America a melting pot. Well, recognize, recognize that it's not a melting pot. It's actually, it's actually more of a salad. We're not all melted together. We're not all one at all. And, this this, that's why when people i'm so glad that people have called this out and like have stomped this out of language but to say oh i don't see color like i'm so glad that's not a thing that's a thing that gets interrupted like you can't skate by on that anymore you have to recognize color you have to recognize diversity we're not all the same we don't all have the same experiences and because of that you would think people would be more inclined to to stay curious and to learn the real history of how we all ended up here and how institutionalized racism works and how it's still at play in every like it's baked into the cake of what this country is so it it always kind of surprises me when you try to be helpful and educate people when they do mess up when they do accidentally go- dog whistle when they do say something that's really offensive or like racially offensive and they don't know because it's so normalized amongst their friends and family to say certain things and then they say it in mixed company and then they get defensive when it offends someone. I think a lot of people have just been socialized to say, well, you're just being too sensitive or why does everything have to be about race and it get you get all this pushback from for trying to educate. Why are people so um resistant to learning, like taking on new information and growing from there. When I think now more than ever, I mean, I believe now more than ever in the history of our society, people are willing to educate. People are willing to call in and not necessarily burn you at the stake. Like what an opportunity to grow and learn and do better and create a a, a better society for everyone, a more inclusive society for everyone and and, and extend equity when you can. I don't know why anyone would be resistant to that. Not that anyone owes anyone else kindness when it comes to being a racist piece of shit. I don't owe you politeness or, or gentleness. I don't need to handle you with kid gloves. But when people do choose to do that, like, some people don't want to receive it and that that's really disappointing to encounter that especially when i see it happening on tiktok every fucking day there is so much white supremacy on that app and when people say oh it's just the boomers you know it's it's that generation and and they're dying off racism's dying off it's not really a thing no fuck you these racist people have procreated and they have children and their children have children that shit gets passed down when no one is deconstructing when i see huge tiktok creators that are like 22 saying like saying things like oh slavery wasn't that bad i think they're embellishing i think they're embellishing how bad slavery was i think some slaves had really great relationships with their masters you just said slave and master and good relationship in the same fucking sentence don't tell me the boomers are the racist ones and they're the ones dying off no they're the ones having children and passing this shit down like it's it's in the the gen z crowd white supremacy and these shit takes being spewed from huge platforms and being indoctrinated into even the even younger generation like it's still a problem So being passively not okay with racism, again, I'm going to say 20 times in this episode, it is not enough. You have to be actively anti-racist. You have to call it out. You have to interrupt it. You have to get your people. White people need to do more and do better and like gather your people up and tell them what's what, because they need to get their their shit together. Honestly, I hate seeing younger and younger and younger people doing white supremacist shit on social media.
2: I agree, and there is a lot. There's pipelines all over the place. There's all that Andrew Tate stuff. There's a lot of weird stuff wrapped up in modern conceptions of masculinity. Yeah, there's a lot of historical revisionism going on everywhere. Yeah, Yeah.
1: just you can't just rewrite history. You really can't. But with people consuming short form content now, and that's the only way people are like. Absorbing information, like with TikTok, especially TikTok and maybe even YouTube Shorts, people are taking these really short snippets of out of context information. And that's how they're getting their like education, sort of. Like it's like micro education on TikTok. And information spreads like wildfire when it's in short form content and a, a good portion of that short form wildfire content is steeped in white supremacy and that's terrifying
2: yeah plus i think again going back to this idea of fetishization being taking a part of the whole and just like removing it and putting it out of context it's a very similar thing to what happens when you just see one little 30 second clip out of somebody's tiktok content and it it's that's very easy to um i think that there is like a natural tendency of the energy of something like that to move toward white supremacy unless you are very active in the other direction and active can look like a lot of things and i think you know i don't know i don't know that tiktok is anything I think at this point, TikTok is becoming more and more like a lost cause in that regard. So some of it is just like understanding that cultivating a space that does not center whiteness and white supremacy. And I don't know that TikTok can be that space or can be for very long, can be in a sustained way. But you can... Cultivate your following. You can be actively aware of or try to be. I mean, it's very difficult. Like that's such a vast app and everything is so out of context that it takes a lot of legwork to even come up with like strategies that you're going to follow through with to try to use your platform if you have one in an anti-racist way or even just to cultivate a following in a community that's doing something helpful that's like that is not centering whiteness these things take a lot of effort I remember there was like a whole thing a couple when I first got on there there was some sort of challenge of like what's your watch history what's your like history how many black faces and white faces are in that history and a lot of people were getting called out and other people were um performatively putting up their like history pages (laughs) but uh you know that's just an example of like not bragging about it but just literally taking action to actively cultivate your your feed to have a sense of the context of the and the political views of the people that you're following and you know you can't be every every, everybody everything you can't be perfect at it but uh, maybe that's part of the reason why tiktok just doesn't even work as a very sustainably healthy community building space and uh anti-racist space that's actually doing anything productive like i think it i think there was more at the beginning because you need when you need fast information there's something really beautiful about not having to get it through mainstream media sources all of a sudden but it feels like it has become stale it feels like people people are are exhausted of this short-form content because you really can't learn history through short form content because short form content is all about just manipulating your emotions real quick and it's gone as soon as it comes and you're not learning very much. I don't think you're learning a ton no matter who you follow on TikTok. I think you kind of have to learn outside of TikTok and then you can be relatively conscious or not of how that content is wielding your emotions. Well,
1: I think when it comes to big issues like this one, like racism and white supremacy and all of these different topics under white supremacy as a white person. Like I could see a lot of people thinking they can just get by on getting a, a quick history, a quick rundown on what I can do better in 30 seconds what I can do better in like a memeified, easily consumable way. You can see people trying to scrape by on that with an app like TikTok, not having to really do deep dives and really do the work, just, you know, have that like history as a flex. Oh, look at all these people that I follow. And, you know, try to do the bare minimum when, when you're the norm, when you're the societal standard, when you're the neurotypical standard, when you're white and these things don't actually negatively impact you in a significant way, why not try to get by with, you know, a memeified version of an education?
2: Well, and it is like a good that's a good question because it's like, why why do why would you care if you're not the person affected? But I think when you learn the history, what you realize is that it does affect us all and i think when when the people that are the most marginalized and the most disadvantaged by our society when we make corrections when we when we when we move in the direction of giving them space to survive and exist and even thrive the people that are the most marginalized at the most outskirts which is essentially Trans, Indigenous, or BIPOC, Black people, especially women and femmes, uh, and people that are uh, class-wise that are marginalized below the poverty line or subaltern. When you when you make moves to get those people to a place where within our society they are able to survive and thrive, then that helps everybody else. When you make moves to help just the person closest to the center that only helps the person close to the center nobody else and i think that's a point that kimberly crenshaw makes really well uh to, to read some of her writing is that it, it really um yeah it's it really does and you can see that when you understand history when you learn history you can see that that really is how it works and that the best problem solvers of our society are the people that experience some of that marginalization when they're able to actually have a voice and contribute to, you know, have a say in what would be best and how the society should operate. And we really are in dire circumstances. I mean, this is a terrifying time to live through. Climate change is terrifying. Philadelphia was like, the skies were burning. Like, Canada's fires came down into Philadelphia the other week. And for the first time, I think, you know, that I've ever experienced anywhere on the East coast, the sky, it was like sepia tones. The sun was all red and everybody had, we were all coughing. It smelled like a bonfire because Canada was on fire and the West coast was just like, yeah, that's old hat. Yeah. First time, huh? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. <laughs> it's the, it's like literally hell. And then like, you you know, this wild times that we're living through. And it's because the world is about to have to reset if we don't quit it because we're doing so badly because of who we put in charge. (laughs) It's not going great. Mm -hmm. This is dire. This is like, some things are not even reversible about that situation. And it is beyond time to start listening to other people who might have solutions that work for everybody and not just some people, because when you think it's going to work for you, it's not going to work for you. Nobody is actually at the center. I think I've said this before, but this is like my big theory. You think you're at the center. You think you're entitled. You're going to be disappointed because you're not, you're not really at the center, no matter who you are, something puts you outside of the center. And so you are not benefiting from how things have been going. This has not worked and it is definitely time. So time it's beyond time for change. It's beyond time for change. And I don't know how many
1: more wake up calls it'll take because I feel like our generation, millennials specifically, have experienced so much trauma year after year, decade after decade. Like so much shit has happened yeah. In our little 30-something, 40-something lifespan so far, or, or or time here so far. um, And if it wasn't a few summers ago, um, nearly, like, I don't know, 40% of the world was on fire. The entire, all of Australia was on fire one summer. And, like, most of California was on fire. If that didn't wake people up, like, seeing photos of little baby koalas like scorched and burned and people just driving through what looked like hell recording on their phones, just driving through. Just you can see, you can see the sky. You could just see flames and smoke. Like if that didn't wake people up, if COVID
2: didn't fucking wake people up that something needed to change. Uh, Or the George Floyd protests, those that that was apocalyptic. That was a huge shift in energy. And I think things have been changing in waves, but it's still going and still needs to go.
1: But it's like until your backyard is
2: smoking, I
1: mean, people don't really care until it's literally in their backyard. And even then, it might even have to be in the house for them to wake up and be like, oh, this is actually gonna burn me maybe I should do something and even then it's still self-preservation it's not like an outward we should do something to make the world better for everyone even when it's it's so close it's still just about me 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 that's not helping
2: that's another really important like tenet of white supremacy is individualism versus collectivism I don't know if we I don't remember if we talked about that yet but like the idea that anything is about you as an individual as opposed to we're, my theory is that we're all one it's not my theory but a theory that i i ascribe to is that we are all one thing we are all one species we are all one organism you are are me so i shouldn't be hurting you because i'm hurting me
0: are you tired of feeling unsafe online do you want to learn how to protect yourself from cyberbullying doxing and other forms of online harassment then look no further than Doxed the Podcast. Visit the website doxedthepodcast.com to sign up for the Doxed free ebook full of helpful tips and resources for online safety. Plus, when you sign up, you'll receive the weekly newsletter with the latest updates on upcoming content. There are many ways to connect with Doxed, including Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Discord. Have a story to share or feedback to give? Use the contact form on the site to reach out or leave a voice message to be featured on the show. And for exclusive content, subscribe to the Doxed Supercast to gain access to the private podcast feed with member only exclusives. Take control of your online safety and join the Doxed community today.
2: And I think, uh, what, you know, It's a trick to think that we as individuals and we're set up for failure that way. That's why so many child prodigies fail (laughs) because it's not about anybody as an individual. Genius is like, is a myth. It's like a white supremacist myth that some people are just higher up than others uniquely. No, it all was a complete, like not a complete product of their environment, but it's not, it's literally a nationalist myth, the the myth of individual genius. Like, you think about geniuses, Mozart, Einstein, um, Beethoven. What's What do they have in common? They're from Germany and Vienna, like, and they're white, and they're men. I mean, this is the picture of genius, like, they're, um... <sighs> it's a myth designed to promote this concept of white supremacy and that some people are better than others and that there, there's some kind of hierarchy. So anyway, that's, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Like, like understanding that the good of the collective is your good. I think that we're all, we all are set up to believe that that's not how we should be operating. And it's like everyone for themselves and you, and you, It's like a rewriting of history to say that just those individual people were the people that changed history instead of it being movements and also the things going on domestically, the women behind the scenes running things, doing the household, making sure everybody was fed and making sure, you know, raising children so that they could continue to, to we could continue to exist like those things are all part of history too but yeah it's a myth of individualism that's what i want to say
1: that's another thing about white supremacy and women white supremacy and white women white supremacy doesn't give a shit about white women women in general but you would think as a white woman you'd have some like the proximity to power would offer some kind of like protection absolutely not white supremacy doesn't serve anyone but white men american born white men um i was listening to this the podcast series bundyville mm-hmm. it's amazing it's like a netflix series in just audio it's so great it's about this this family in god I can't remember what state I'm not going to butcher it I'm I'm going to really try hard <laughs> just some reason it's about this family that uh they had this like dispute with the government over not paying grazing fees for their cattle on public land like they had a relatively small ranch but let their cattle just kind of roam everywhere on public land to eat I guess to graze that you're supposed to pay for that because it's BLM land and they felt entitled to not pay so they were really like anti-government and felt like they had a right to use public land without any kind of oversight which is just not how it works and there the sentiment was like really mixed in with like white supremacist Ideologies and they had a lot of supporters that held really strong beliefs in like states' rights and like what do they call it? Um, some kind of sovereignty. What's that term called? Oh, sovereign citizen. Oh, they believed in being a sovereign citizen and they shouldn't have to follow the laws or whatever. It's like this, really. And they had a really like distorted interpretation of the Constitution, and just kind of leaned into whatever reinforced their like their white their whiteness and their like patriarchal dominance that they felt they had over everyone. So the series like it really highlights the the various extremist groups and militias all around the country that rallied around this Bundy family and um it's just wild but they're, they play a lot of clips of these like standoffs that they had with the police like shooting at the cops cops shooting at them like bombs going off like it was it was it was like waco basically i don't know if you saw that i don't know if it was like a hulu or netflix thing that kind of covered the whole Waco thing but it's very much like Waco it's very much like the o- Oklahoma City bombing like they're all kind of tied into this this Bundy situation but in one of the clips that they were playing on the podcast of people being shot and the standoff that they were having up with the cops one of the main guys was like their strategy was to put women on the front lines if the cops started shooting at them to appeal to the emotions of the public, like, oh, look, mm. they shoot at women and they shoot at our children, they killed our babies. Like, they were absolutely
0: yeah. <laughs> making insidious. women
1: and children the sacrificial lambs for their cause. Yeah, that's so insidious. Ugh. Gross. Saying it with their whole chest, like, we put women on the front lines when the cops start shooting.
2: Disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, I I don't think that we benefit whatsoever from the white patriarchy. I mean, it is. It's like a it's like a limited level of proximity to the power, but our real power as women does not derive from anything in that system, I would say. And just to like reiterate, just to reiterate that really I don't think anyone's at the center. I think that even when you're a white man, you can still be poor and it's not like an oppression that excuses you from anything, but but you're still not exactly at the center. You're still not the thing that you even, society is telling you that you're entitled to all this stuff because of, and it doesn't benefit you either. You would still be better off. Even if you are just one iota from the center, you would still be better off with a society. And I think people are really afraid of that. I had an ex who was uh, who had a chronic illness, and we had a discussion about about the broken uh, insur- medical insurance system in this country. And I was saying that we should just have uh, care for every care for all, and he was like pushing back on that. And I was like, yeah, but like you have like a chronic illness. What if you like lost your job, like you would not have to be so concerned with your job and you would be in less danger because you would have more of a safety net. And he was like, yeah, but what if it would disrupt my care just to do the transition into into this other system of healthcare? And it was just like mind blowing to me that you would think that you're just like, I don't know. Like, I, I think it was a fear. Uh, it was coming out of a place of fear because it's a person who was otherwise like very empathetic, but was really having this like personal, like, well, it becomes kind of like a life or death feeling for me personally. And then I can't think outside of that, but really that person mm-hmm. would, I think, I think that person would have benefited still from that kind of a change.
0: Yeah.
2: I had a similar conversation with my most
1: recent ex. Uh, yeah, my ex had type 1 diabetes, and I'd never known anyone personally or like intimately that has type 1. And I mean, there's people with type 2 in my family that's totally self induced. They totally did it to themselves with diet or whatever, and they manage it. They can reverse it if they made changes, but they choose not to. It's very different than having type 1 which is you're either born with it or just there's a sudden onset and there is no reversing it and you're on insulin for the rest of your life and you need insulin to live. And it didn't really dawn on me like, oh, you need insulin to live. You you need a constant supply of insulin and it's not free. And if you don't have it, you don't live for very long, like maybe a day without your insulin and there's nothing you can do to manage it. So like that became like a real thing for me being in relationship with someone with type one and i was like oh man that that's a that's a way of life i wouldn't wish on anyone like that's horrible to like if you were to if you had insurance through your job and you lost your job you would have to come up with like thousands of dollars to have a constant supply of insulin and it it expires like you can't just stockpile it either and so we're talking about like the idea of like universal healthcare and how it would save so many lives, specifically for type 1 diabetics. And he was like, he had the same response like that your ex had, well, what about me? Or what if I can't be seen on time? Like, yeah, he's talking about universal healthcare in other countries and how people have to wait so long to be seen. And so he very much went into, well, well what about me? I wouldn't want that. I, I like being in control of my healthcare and da da da. But I'm like, Well, you're also an employee for a big corporation. And if they decide you're not valuable anymore, you won't have that healthcare anymore. But if it was universal, that would never be a concern. But still, it's just, well, what about me?
2: Yeah. And yeah, when you are disabled in any way or you have any kind of chronic illness, there could really easily become a time at some point that you can't even know or determine that you can't work. And this country makes it very dangerous for people to be in that position, mm-hmm. really does. So, but I think it's because of fear. I think it was, and a real fear mm-hmm. when it really comes. And that's what going back to this, uh, these ideas of decolonizing, Like I think that's where it really is an incredibly deep fear because the, rea- the, th- the thought is, okay, if it's land back, what happens to it? to me Mm -hmm. what happens to us what happens what how do I take care of myself and still be comfortable and still whatever and that is not the point but there is an incredible uh, just uh it takes a lot of deconstruction to move past I think what is a very deep-seated fear when it comes to your own survival and then that make that can make you I think defensive and it can make you sometimes unable to think past it and And now that i'm thinking about it now that you're talking about this like i've
1: encountered so many what about me moments specifically from white people in like various situations various conversations about various scenarios uh this reminds me of uh, that one awful summer where every other weekend there is a new hashtag the black person that had been murdered by the police like it it was facebook was just a hellhole of of trauma of videos of black people dying and an old acquaintance of mine was weighing in on a post i think it was particularly about philando castile that was a big one and her boyfriend at the time was a cop and i'm reading through these comments and she was like well if if my man was in that situation, I would want him to shoot first and ask questions later. Like, what about my boyfriend? If he was in that situation, I would want him to shoot. Like, completely missing the point that there needed to be no shooting at all. No one needed to die for any reason. Like, there was no reason for a whole, like, hair trigger thing and taking someone's life. There was, there was, it was a senseless murder. Of someone, but the sentiment even then was, "Well, what about my boyfriend? He's a cop too. I don't want him to shoot." Uh, there was another situation with an old client of mine when I had my my lash studio, and there was a shooting down the street from my salon, and it had made the news, and we were talking about it, and um, there was another client in the room saying that she had a friend that was scared that someone was lurking around her home or someone like had ran past her home like they were in trouble or something and it scared her. So because they were a black person, instead of calling the police to look into it, she called the fire department to come and explain to them that there was something going on and she didn't quite know what And the fire department came and then the police came and the fire department had explained to the police what was going on. And so it wasn't this whole suddenly escalated thing. My client's husband was a firefighter and she chimed in, well, I wouldn't want someone to call my husband to come and put him in danger. Don't call the fire department. What if my husband shows up?
2: Like, uh,
1: so (laughs) annoying.
2: yeah really centering your, it's just like a complete compulsion to center yourself at all times. Yeah. Gross. (laughs) It is gross. And it's like, it's just, you know, it's something you have to, you have to, you have to practice. You have to deconstruct if you're, if you're growing up and that's just what you have to practice. It takes work, do the work, but you can. You can do it. It's really, you can retrain your brain. It definitely starts off as a, just a gut compulsion based on, how do I say Like just a compulsion. I mean, it's like going
1: against the grain of society though, that teaches white people to center themselves because they are the center of the world. As a global minority, it's very weird that white people are centered themselves so much and make themselves the standard for everything the european standard is like a global standard but in the grand scheme white people are the global minority Yeah, there are way more people of color way more like other cultures other ethnicities than just european people or okay. white people as a like a social construct
2: yeah but the reason that society is teaching us to do that again is not actually to benefit us it's the benefit the the machine of society mm-hmm. at the end of the day because mm. these things really are to- are toxic we convince ourselves that there's some sort of superiority in white ways of being we being 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 our society
0: thank you for listening find additional content at doxedthepodcast.com